getting healthy these days, there's a lot you need to do. You need to work out. You need to find the right diet. You need to find the right supplements. You need to get the right amount of sleep. You need to get the right amount of light or darkness or get rid of the blue. I mean, there's just so much to do, right? Uh, I don't know. We're going to find out on today's episode of the Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body starting feet first, because that's your foundation. Although today we're going to get into the rest of you too. Um, we're, here's where we break down the propaganda, the mythology, and often the outright lies you've been told about what it takes to run or walk or play or do yoga or CrossFit, whatever you like to do and do it enjoyably and efficiently and effectively and did I say enjoyably? I know I did. It's a trick question. Because look, if you're not having fun, do something different until you are, because you're not going to keep it up if you're not enjoying it. So just call it what it is. Um, by the way, we call this the movement movement because we are creating a movement about natural movement, letting your body do what it's supposed to do naturally without getting in the way. The movement part, about which involves you, is really simple. You can go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. There's nothing you need to do to join. There's no membership. There's no secret handshake. It just means that you can find our previous episodes that you can like and share and leave reviews. Give us the thumbs up where you can do that. You can hit the bell icon on YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. You know what to do. If you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. So let's jump in. Graham, why don't you do me a favor? Tell human beings who you are and what the hell you're doing here. <laughs> I mean, I got to say, though, if we were talking about W-2s and how you've never really, you've very, very rarely had any. If oh. you ever need a W-2 job being a radio host, a phenomenal. I mean, that was just. That was oh, smooth. well. Thank you. I mean, um, I don't know. Well, look, anything where I have to be there every day for a fixed amount of time doing a specific thing is not going to work in my brain. But um, I did make a lot of money doing uh, voiceover work for radio and TV. And okay. in fact, I'm going to tell you right now, I'll show you right now how I made $15,000 one year. This is 30 years ago. Ready? Here we go. Did the following. This is literally the entire length of the recording session that I did. Fire. That was it. So I, um, it was a commercial. The army did something really interesting. They'd hire actors to do radio commercials. And if the commercials worked well, they would then bring in actual people from the army to do the TV version of that commercial. So I, uh, you know, you heard me yelling fire uh, all around the country for about a year. That was a blast. That's amazing. And if you think about $15,000 back in those days, it's like, it was like million now. <laughs> no, I don't know what it was. It was it, suffice it to say it paid the rent for a year. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so my name is Graham Tuttle. I'm the, uh, I guess, more colloquially known as the Barefoot Sprinter on social media these days, which has just become an interesting um, little tidbit about me. But uh, basically, I'm a strength, performance, health, fitness coach, just a failed personal trainer decided to uh, move more into creating content and educating people more broadly. I, I was talking about this with one of my friends yesterday. I was like, I'm a really bad personal trainer. They sit there, they count to 10, they really care. And I'm like, I want to find a solution and get past it. So I'm just in unorthodox. I have an unorthodox level of curiosity about life. And I just tend to question everything. And so uh, that paired with this, there's this uh, great Alex Ramosi's guy I look up to and he put up this post about the three things that like very successful people have in common. It's like one, they think they're superior, they're better than other people and not like worth more, but like they have more capacity to handle and do things and, and like to develop a skill set. Two, they never think they're good enough. And three, they have incredible impulse control. So something along the lines. That's interesting. Do you know the the impulse control study they do with kids and how it's correlated to success later? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah they, I mean, they put a marshmallow or something down and they say the ones that will not do it, they come back to get two, the ones that can pass that. 
Yeah. yeah. It's like, don't touch the marshmallow. We'll be back in a little bit. If you don't touch it, we'll give you another one. And then it, if people haven't watched these videos, you can find them. Um, it's hysterical watching kids like lose their minds trying to not eat a marshmallow. And then some of them just crack. And I mean, it, it's, it's, I mean, it's really sad, but it's pretty funny. And it is interesting that the ones who have better impulse control den- tend to at least perform better on statistical tests like the SAT. They get better grades to get into better colleges. I don't know about the success thing because that's just mm-hmm. a word I have no concept for. Um, I, I think I have friends who have made huge amounts of money and w- they've all said the same thing, uh, which is, you know, after I made all this money, people thought I'm way smarter than I am. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there is that phenomenon. That is, that's an amazing thing. Do you get any level of notoriety? People look at you differently. And I'm like, I was the same thing six months ago, but no one noticed. <laughs> it's really disturbing. There's a, I used to live in Boulder, Colorado. Now I live slightly out of Boulder. And there's a group that I refer to as Boulder's Rich and Guilty. So there's a lot of people with a bunch of money and they clearly seem to feel guilty about it because of the way they spend it and what they what they support. But I've been going to, par- you know, Boulder's a small town. You, I go to parties and I see these people and they've never given me the time of day. They know who I am, never spoken to me. And someday we may be in a situation financially where we show up at that party and they come up and say hi. And I... I have, you know, responses planned. It'll be interesting to see if I uh, say them and make it so they definitely never talk to me ever again. Because amazing. I mean, I mean, I get it. Like some of these people are in social and financial situations where people are awkward around them or people are asking for things from them. They want to, you know, use them. They don't get to know them. They have all these ideas. I get that you don't want to do that. And I get that they don't know that I'm not someone who gives a crap about any of that. But nonetheless, you know, it's one of those things. I want to back up to your failed personal trainer. Was it because you had a hard time counting to 10? Well, so this is one of the things I went to University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And so I got my exercise oh, science I'm, degree. I'm and- sorry. I'm sorry. We're going to have to cut this short. I totally either forgot or didn't know that since I went to Duke and we're not legally allowed to have this conversation. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> it's okay. You'll, you'll forgive me. Maybe you make an exception. But I graduated early, so I didn't even do the, there's like the general track, then there's like the fitness professional, the athletic training. So the actual like advanced tracks, I did the bare minimum. And so I got there in one of the classes, I was joking, because they teach you how to count the 10. So um, I didn't do very well in that one. I only got to eight. But, but, you know, but there's some workouts where you only need to get to eight. So you could have been, had a successful career. You just didn't really, you didn't ask enough questions to yourself the way you said before, like, do I need to count to 10 or is eight good enough? Well, so the, there is a certain part, I think, when it comes to personal training that you have to kind of go along with the, you're going to show up, I'm going to be here to babysit you, I'm going to motivate you, and you're going to go to this, and I count to 10. It's like, once you kind of see through it, it all doesn't matter, because it's like, you know, was it six, is it eight, is it 10? Like, the, I don't know, the reps are all made up. It's like, I pick a few exercises and make up some for a few. And it's like, people don't really like that kind of free moving, creative yeah. <laughs> no, they, they want you to tell them what to do. Yeah. It's like, here's a plan that will get them to the place that they think will then make them happy. And yes. uh, yeah, that, that sentence is fraught with peril. And then they come in the first day and I end up talking about like their feelings and their thoughts and what's going on in their life and their sunlight and why they're working a job. They're miserable. They never see like one of the guys, I've, uh, he's been a really good friend and uh, he's helped me establish as a landlord. He's a client, a landlord, just to kind of help me establish a few different things. So he's played different roles in my life, but and the man owns dozens of businesses. Like he you know, is a very successful entrepreneur, dozens of like individual locations in his business. He's got like, you know, he's very successful. And yet he works in an office in the middle of a warehouse with no window. Like he goes into a warehouse and sits in the middle with no, and I'm like, 
you're one of the most successful people I know. And yet you sit in a place for 60 hours a week with like behind 15 screens. And I'm like, gosh. Um, yeah. You know, look to each his own. I can't think really well unless I have a high ceiling and or space that I can see. Um, mm-hmm. There's a weird, I remember being at a, um, at a meeting with a bunch of friends in a restaurant and we we're sitting in a corner table and the ceiling in the corner table was low mm-hmm. and we were doing some creative something. And I said, wait, hold on. I got to think, figure this out. And I had to back up until I was at a point where the ceiling above me was like 15 feet instead of eight feet. Cause I couldn't think this sounds weird. I couldn't think with the ceiling that low above my head. I mean, cause I couldn't like place all the ideas in this imaginary space and rearrange them in a way that was going to get me where I wanted. And that was the first time I really thought about how my space inter- interacts with my thinking. So this is what I was, I just Googled it to make sure I'm on the same page. It's called the cathedral effect. It's basically oh my uh, God. ceilings tend to bring on feelings of confinement while high ceilings inspire a feeling of freedom. So there's something to do, I think, with the, uh, the your brain's capacity, but it, it is a fascinating thing to... Um, so you're not alone in this well and i'm sure and i'm sure it's not the same for everybody because i mean i do know many people who just spend their whole time in a tiny room behind a bunch of screens right up against their face and they do just fine it's just the way my brain works for whatever reason but you could probably make the distinction between like left and right brain like or no i'll tell you why the guy who came up with um so i was a cognitive psych guy when i was a duke this is uh, when did i graduate 83 and a half 84 the guy who came up with that idea of left brain right brain has on numerous occasions said it was the biggest mistake he ever made in his life because mm, okay. uh, so it's not the way it works um, i mean there are some localized functions undeniably but with the idea that you know right brain is all about creativity and that if you're creative you're in your right brain versus if you're linear it's like left brain is completely not true your whole brain is doing all of those things but it's become like a thing now it's a badge of honor i mean especially among i'll say this with a bit of disdain no, not disdain a bit of something i'm poking fun at people that i'm about to talk about there are creative people who take pride in going well i'm just really right brained you know i don't do that you never hear people doing the other well i'm really left brained they never are proud about that you can be proud about being right brained um, but not the other way now my favorite thing about that is when people would like people would so way back when i started a software company for a uh, product for writers and I would have writers say to me, call me with, for tech support, complaining about some you know thing they had a hard time with on their computer. And they say, well, I'm a writer. I'm not a computer programmer. And I would say, okay, um, do you know the following three writers? And these are people who are massively successful. And they, as writers, ignore how much money they may or may not have made. Uh, and they would, oh, yeah. I go, yeah. In their spare time, they all write computer code. <laughs> so, you know, it's just not what people think. Anyway. Blah, blah, blah. Um, Point being is that whether or not this functionality across, like, let's just say you're oriented towards more of a creative open and versus a contracted dilated perspective. I think that there might be. You know, I'm going to stop you there too, just for the hell of it. Um, Because this idea that one is is open and the other is somehow contained, I, I would argue that's completely not true. You talk to any good, really, really logical, linear scientist, and they will be talking to you about how creative they are and what they're doing. And it's about opening new spaces. I remember the physicist, Richard Feynman, somebody said to him that they would hate to be him because he sees everything as just, you know, parts and pieces and it's linear and they're really creative. And he's like, oh, no, no, I don't think you understand. 
when I look at a, I'm paraphrasing dramatically. When I look at a glass of water, it's all I can do not to be overwhelmed by awe because it's incredible that I'm seeing through a solid. And I understand how the molecules and atoms play together and how this is actually a microcosm of the universe and, uh, itself. And even that it's contained in a glass is miraculous. And he just goes on and on about, you know, the um, incredible artisticness of physics. And uh, it just stopped the person cold. Now, Feynman also, just to prove a point, became a really amazing bongo drummer, did crazy things, learned how to paint portraits um, and do still lives. And um, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, what's the word when you're painting a human being who's sitting in front of you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, whatever that is. He did that in part to, you know, frankly, he admitted to see women in small amounts of clothing to paint them and draw them. But regardless, um, you know, he became he be, started doing artistic things because he found it interesting and also to prove a point. But anyway, so, yes, there are some things that are the end result looks linear to people who don't know any better. And there are some things that look open and creative to people who don't know any better. I'll refine my language once further to say that the fractals of contracted and dilated thought processes allow you to think in different modes that allow you to be focused on something versus to think more broadly. I think it's an eye dilation versus a constriction. Yeah, I'm not saying that the same person can do that. I would just say that there might be times where you feel stronger or you're making the decision. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I'm, I'm going to go there. And there's definitely, there's that thing of focusing that sort of opens up the doorway where suddenly something just pops yeah. in because um, you've become so focused that your brain almost is looking for an escape and finds, you know, some wacky new yeah. idea. So This is fun. Normally, I, I, I like to be able, normally no one else will like refine the semantics and then go to the next piece. I'm like, all right, let's go there. This is like a chess match. It's a verbal chess match. I, I love that. That's what like. Well, I have all my people that go to the gym that unfortunately still think I'm a personal trainer. They show up and I'm like, we're going to have an argument about something. I don't know what it is. Like someone will just literally anything in the news, anything in like political theory or just like, it doesn't even matter. I just like pick a side. Let's argue. And then I'm like, what about that? just back and forth, but no one gets to argue. This is fun. I like this. There's a, there's a Charlie Chaplin movie. I almost said an old Charlie Chaplin movie, which was a funny phrase. It popped into my head because um, he hasn't made any ones lately. So I don't know what's going on with the guy, but uh, there's a scene, if I'm remembering correctly, there's uh, a dad big guy and his two younger kids who are like you know 20 and they're on a boat if i'm remembering correctly and they're having dinner sitting at the table dad's at the head of the table the two brothers are sitting on opposite sides facing each other and uh they finish dinner and they push back from the table and they look at each other and say okay let's fight and then they just break into a fight yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it is like it is like a verbal it's like verbal jujitsu verbal chess it's like being able to think about it. it's like okay where are you going and then it's like you catch it it's a lot of fun because if you can start to i mean at some point you get to like if you maintain the idea that like i'm never wrong it's just you don't understand me <laughs> i think that always is a fun place to go in <laughs> well you know you started by saying talking about asking questions and i was going to accuse you of being socratic and i recently was uh, asked, you know, if I could go back in time to meet anybody, who would it be? And I said, Socrates. Mm. I love this idea of just continually investigating until you find something where you just can't get underneath it, where mm. that's as true as it's going to get, as far as you can tell. Mm. And then I like to see if I can get underneath that too. So yeah. that's how I got here was just all the things about running and movement. It's like, are, are these things that people are saying, is that true? It just sounds like mythology. I got a good I've developed a good radar for urban mythology. I can kind of hear something where it just sounds like it's just been passed down without anyone ever investigating it. Yeah. Which is amazing to me to think about just even the concept that most people don't, 
you'll hear something and it's the, the way they say whether it's a lack of conviction or they kind of like say and I, there's something like oh well, you know and they do that like they back away from it as they're like leaning into it and it's oh, like it's oh, very interesting oh no sometimes they're 100 convicted i mean they are completely uh, convinced that this thing is true and um and it, it it takes just a tiny bit of probing to reveal that that's not the case and then of course they start acting like you're trying to kill their children because yeah, yeah, we, yeah. we seem to hold our beliefs in a similar way that we hold our very sense of self. And yeah. so you, you question someone's belief and you feel like they're being attacked or they feel like they're being attacked. Which- yeah. People confuse the statement of truth with the statement of belief and they walk around thinking their statement of belief or statement of truth. And so then like you're tearing apart their, the framework of their reality by just questioning certain things. You're like, well, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> it's um, for some reason though, it feels like a big deal. And I literally do think it's a neurological thing. I literally think that we hold certain beliefs, especially ones that are not attached to physical reality, something you can see, feel, touch. Um, we hold those in a way that I literally do think is partly what makes up our sense of self. And so you pull the rug out from underneath that. And for some people, that's very disturbing. Some people find that fun and interesting. Um, yeah. that, that's a whole you know subset of human beings. But um, anyway, this was a very entertaining tangent, but I want to go back to what we opened with, because this is a conversation you and I started with that you know, maybe people give a shit about. So, and this relates to your failed personal training biz. There are so many things. If I just go through my inbox or even more my spam box, I can't even tell you how many emails I'm getting on a daily basis about something that I need to do to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Some new thing that has just been discovered or you know, only they, the secret they know about. And you know, it can be really, really overwhelming. And so this, I, I brought that up because of something you said in our little chat before this started. You may have a different opinion about that or a different take on that, it seems. Am I incorrect? No, and I think it's ironic because there's a certain level of our conversation on Socrates or Socrates, however you pronounce it. I, that's how I would love to meet you and ask him. It's Socrates. Socrates. Okay, well, you got even the third option. Yeah. Um, but the idea of like getting under the, like continuing to ask the next question and getting under the next level in a certain sense, um, my entire framework in terms of how I want to present a, a model of health and functionality for people is to make it so basic and simple that there's not, they don't want to disagree with it in a sense, like your feet shouldn't be in pain. Your feet shouldn't hurt. I would like that as that is a simple argument. It's like, okay, what's the counter argument? Well, no, my feet should hurt. It's like, well, do you like the way that sounded? And so you're starting to, the basic simple framework of going, okay, you know, fundamentally it's like, we have these bodies, these, um, carbon-based meat suits that have evolved over millions of years, a lot of death, a lot of things have happened to allow us to get to where we are now. And so in some senses, like everything we're here is built with a lot of trial and error in some capacity. So the idea of like a, well, it just doesn't work. You got bad genetics. These just aren't, you're not going to be okay. The shoulder is an unstable joint. The feet just need, aren't, you know, feet can't run. The feet need to be in shoes. They need to be protected, need support. And so a lot of these urban myths is urban, I guess, legends, as you call them, which I think is a perfect thing. It's like, Anything that has to be substantiated by some level of like, well, this happens because of that, as opposed to an evident thing that you could walk and see, you know, proven by basic, like the uh, inexistence of our human ability. In some senses, like it doesn't stand the truth test to me. So I look and say, you know, okay, our bodies are strong and capable. And what would we have done for a dietary support? What would we done for a health light? You know, what would our life have looked like 100, 200, 1000 years ago? And then how much of that could we have possibly lost in the intermediate generations versus how much of that has just gotten rusty? And so I kind of take that to say, fundamentally, our body shouldn't be in pain. 
being healthy should be simple and it's accessible to everybody in those three little capacities like that forms a worldview I look at and then say, okay, well, now in the cases that these aren't exhibited to be true, meaning you're in pain, you're confused about your body and you don't feel like you have access to the skills you need what's gone wrong there. And a lot of people, they get confused by marketing. They've been uh, shoved into an environment that no longer fits their actual physical operation system, or they've been told that, you know, they've been, there's gatekeepers of knowledge that, you know, make everything challenging and they put a patent on something and they tell you, well, you can't do it unless you have our special thing. It's like, those are the things that it's like, okay, well, what are the presuppositions that these people are trying to create? So I think that there's, you start to see this bifurcated in a sense where there's either your body is strong, healthy, capable, resilient. You get the right things to kind of get the rust off and get it moving. You get the right support and the right stimuli for the tissues and joints itself. It will take care of itself or the body is ultimately fragile. It's not healthy. It's not capable of surviving on its own. And you need this supplement, this, uh, this pill, this, uh, this thing to be able to function. And so that's where you see one of the other things and you see our medical community that goes to like a triage and like a, yeah, a we got to get everything still so that we can hold on to things and not let anything happen, provide support and passive control to keep the body bound up. Or there's things that are restoration and getting things moving in the right direction. So there's movement or stillness and stillness is always death. So that's the underlying foundation to look at. And then you look and say, I'll let you, you have any reflections or thoughts on that? Well, the only one, I mean, there's a bunch of little things, but the only one that I'm most um, intrigued by is when you present this idea to someone, um, how often do you find that they try to make a claim of being a special little snowflake to whom what you just said doesn't apply? This is so this is a pet theory I have in some senses. I think there's, and there's obviously a reductionist perspective, but there's like two sides of types of people. There's the generalist and there's the specialist, the snowflakes, meaning I tend to be like, well, if it happens to me, it happens to everybody. You know, there's a certain level of like, I'm not special. I'm just a human. These things could happen to anybody. Or there's people, I can't believe this happened to me. Everything is bad. Everything's always in my life. And maybe there's phases of life people go through, but I think you see the certain level of a like, and maybe this is a extrovert versus introvert thing. An introvert's like, it only happens to me. Like I'm alone. No one can understand me versus an extrovert that's broadly like, oh yeah, you're just like me. So I'm going to talk to you. <laughs> well, I think you're onto it. I'm going to dive into this a little more because I think like human beings, we do tend to extrapolate and think that whatever we're experiencing is what other people are or should be experiencing as well, which is often massively misguided. It's why we don't understand people of other cultures very well, because we think that they're just confused versions of us. So like I'll use a, as an example, just um, China. So, and I'll use the, the intellectual property argument that's going on with China. It's like they're stealing our intellectual property. Well, in China, when someone, if someone develops something valuable, their worldview is it should be copied and shared with as many people as possible so they can enjoy the benefits of it. Not that one person should make a whole lot of money from it, that it, that the, the value of the community is important. And this is a completely logical worldview, completely conflicts with the one that we have here, which is you need to protect that so that, you know, a select number of people can make money and then lord it over you. Um, mm -hmm. And, and Americans just literally can't wrap their brain around the idea that this communal version, I don't want to say communist because that's a whole other thing, but this, this communal version of intellectual property is a completely valid way of seeing the world, but we don't get it because we think that other people should think the way we do. We're not exposed to myriad other ways of seeing the world. Mm -hmm. So there's that part and that creates problems because I'll say it from the zero shoes perspective, when someone has, uh, you know, look, manufacturing is never perfect. We have a very, very low 
problem rate with our products. But if somebody has a problem with one of our products, they'll write or, or often they will write or uh, contact us, assuming that it's happening to everybody. They're mm. extrapolating from there. This thing that happened to me, clearly everyone's having the same experience I am. And yeah. it's sometimes very difficult to present with information to them to demonstrate that, no, this is a weird thing. Or they go, well, I got one pair of shoes and then I got it replaced. I have the same problem. I went, yeah, it's not because we have this with everybody. It's because the guy who was making that shoe made the one right after it too. And so, uh, you know, he just screwed it up a couple of times in a row and we'll see what we can do about that. So we've always got a solution, but anyway, so that's the first part, but the other snowflakey part is that even if you found a million people who were exactly like you, who thought just like you, but there was one thing that all million of those people thought that was different than you, you'd go, yeah, but see, I'm actually not like them. Mm-hmm. If 99.9% of what they're doing is exactly like you, that 0.1%, you're going to see, uh, I'm special. If you hear that everyone who's ever won the lottery is no happier than they were before they won the lottery, some a year later, you'd still think, yeah, but if I won the lottery. I would have so, learned that lesson the hard way. <laughs> well, but again, that's an interesting point. It's like people say that same thing. It's like, I want to, you know, let, let me see. Let's prove it. No one b- will believe that if they found a million people who got the thing that they thought they needed to be happy and found out those million people were no happier than they were before getting it or no happier than the person investigating, they'd still go, yeah, but if I got it. And that's you know, the, the flip side. On the one hand, we extrapolate and assume everyone's like us. On the other hand, on, around certain things, we think that we're special little snowflakes, mm. which is, again, you're presenting a we're all fundamentally the same in that it's all these bodies are really simple, really, because there was a time where we didn't have all these accoutrements and all these accessories and all these supplements and all these tools and techniques and gyms and workout styles and blah, blah, blah. And people were doing just fine. Mm -hmm. But you say that to someone these days. Yeah. I'm just, again, I'm just wondering how many times someone goes, yeah, that's fine for all of them, but me, which is interesting because what people, so I, I rarely go in with the broad picture. I always go specifics about like, how does your body feel? And there's always some type of pain or something like that. But what's interesting about that argument is that like, who's selling them that like, well, you're not like anybody else. It's like those, it's someone that's trying, it's, it's interesting that once people start to see that of like, well, wait, I'm going to interrupt. I think it's a natural human thing that has been exploited. Yes. 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 That's what I was getting at. Okay, so sorry. like, you look at the marketing where there's a certain level of like, well, you know, that works for some people, but you probably have a specific microbiome, a specific dietary thing, a specific shoe and a specific thing. And it's like, okay, that's convenient for you to sell me a specific product that I have to continue to do. It's like, you know, or it, so this, this, there's no, no, no better is this argument uh, exemplified than when you look at like weight loss for an animal, right? If you have a dog and you say, okay, well, your dog's overweight. How do you get the dog to lose weight? <laughs> I know, you know, this too. Um, well, first you have to find uh, CrossFit for dogs <laughs> and then you need a three month, a minimum three month membership. And, uh, that's, right pretty, that's all I know. Is there some other right. option? You need the right supplements. You have to make sure oh. you get a nutritionist. You get a personal trainer that you work with around the CrossFit. You have to have well, a yeah. pair of workout clothes, right? Leash, right? Collar. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. It, like all, everyone knows the answer, which is you feed the dog less and you take it for a walk. And there is no question about that. And yet when it comes like, I was watching this thing. I'll watch uh, like, if I'm watching, like I'll watch lectures and stuff at night when I'm eating dinner by myself. And then I uh, like, there was this 
well, long, I watch a lot of the commercials just to see the marketing and angle, but like there's this, you'll see these arguments going where there's now it's the current, you got toxic poop floating around your entire body. And so you always like, and it's the fear mongering of like, well, before it was, you know, it's like you're eating too many carbs, you're eating too much fat, you have toxic poop, and now you need to cleanse yourself. Wait, now you're cleansing yourself too much. Now you need to fast. And it's like, there's always some reason. It's like, no, I think it's just the, the you know, take your dog for a walk and feed it less. It's like, it's pretty simple. Now, look, I mean, granted, there are some times where there are yes. peculiarities and there are genetic differences. It's still fundamentally similar. Like I've been accused often as a sprinter, I've been accused uh, often of eating too many carbs. And I say, I've never met a sprinter or other power athlete who doesn't eat a lot of carbs. That's the way we're wired. Well, and you think of even the language, too many carbs. Okay. So this is, I think about this. So you hear this thing where like, and I've been guilty as well, but almost like think of like, what's the underlying assumption that someone is making when they're making their argument? And why does, why do they need that to be true to support their worldview where people would say, and again, I eat, I manage, I am attentional to my carbs, but like I eat rice and fruit and, you know, squash carrots, whatever. Like, but you know, I think it's the, my thing is like, it's the fake food that wasn't here 200 years ago. That's the real problem. But more specifically, you hear people say, well, Carbs and fat never existed in the same, you know, same food as uh, in the wild. You know, that, that you hear that, right? But yes, guess what happens? Humans are really funny and they're really weird. And we go around and say, oh, that would look good with that. Like, think about, so I think about this all the time. I mean, this is just a, just a, a thought, but, you know, the idea of like, well, humans are meant to have tattoos or piercings. Like, you name one indigenous tribe that doesn't have all kinds of body modifications. We're just weird people. And you think about like, even, even just think about the fact of like the food thing. Yeah. You know, you have celebrations. We're going to go and we're going to hunt. We're going to get some of this and put it with some of that. And it's like we come from a long, rich history of people who kept fiddling with the world around us. And it's like our bodies are very well adapted to do this stuff just because that's we're like the most the most multi-tool. Like we're the multi-tool of human or of the animal world, of animal kingdom, in a sense. You know, it's like it's a lot of stuff. I like the idea that we're walking Leatherman. Yeah, it, it is. But you think about that idea from like, okay, well, you should never eat carbs. It's like, well, I'm pretty sure we would have eaten something. Again, you make the argument where you would have access to it. And like, that's all there. But I'm just saying like, anytime there's a reductionist about like the human body can't do this. I'm like, well, are you sure? Like, I think we're pretty much, if we're healthy and happy, we should be able to kind of survive, you know? I'm going to give a plug for someone who's not on this call. Have you heard of Denise Minger? I have not, but I would love to be Denise, told more. Denise wrote a book called Death by Food Pyramid. Okay. So Denise was a, as her teenager, like a raw food vegan, and then she started having serious health problems and started investigating this and then went the exact other way and just started eating practically nothing but meat. And so the paleo community loved her, but she decided to investigate what they were saying too, mm-hmm. and where they were saying carbs and sugar, and especially refined sugar is the devil incarnate. Mm-hmm. And so she started, found a couple things, a number of indigenous tribes who, whose diet is like 80% plus carbs. Some of them refine carbs, like they refine the sugar and they eat the sugar. There was a diet um, actually done at Duke called the rice diet, where you could eat, this is for massively morbidly obese people. You could eat as much as you want of only the following things, fruit juice, white sugar, and um, I'm forgetting one other thing. It's mostly like fruit juice and white sugar. I know I'm forgetting one other thing. Um, and now the diet is no longer being practiced because it's so hard to stay on the guy who did it, who was this crazy German guy was literally whipping people to make them, you know, stick uh. on the diet. I also know Domino's guys who made a thousand dollars by delivering pizzas to these people without anyone knowing. But the interesting point about both the people on the rice diet who lost their weight, got down to a normal weight, reversed, completely cured themselves of diabetes. 
And the people who are these indigenous, indigenous tribes, we eat a ton of carbs, totally healthy, re- totally fine. And Denise, um, I think her blog is something like Raw Food SOS. Don't hold me to it, but look her up, Denise Minger, M-I-N-G-E-R. She has said recently that she doesn't want, she doesn't plan to be writing about diet and health any longer. And given her way of investigating things, my suspicion is that it's because she, in her research, determined there's no real correlation between what you eat and how long you live. I wouldn't be surprised. So this is it's an interesting thing. I kind of like started to pay attention to what people were doing, what they weren't doing. I think there's six fundamental levers of health we can pull on. So I think movement is just one of them. There's food is the second, but there's water, light, breathing, and sleep. So you look at those like, so if I'm talking to someone, all people want to focus. And it's interesting because we have an obsession over food. Like you look at TikToks and yeah. people will just sit there and watch food and food and food and food and food. Like think about the idea of how many restaurants there are there for food. It's just they're everywhere. People want to go eat and I want to eat again. And we're just eating people. We just sit down. And we, I remember it was one of my clients like, you know, y'all North Carolina is just a bunch of eating people. You just eat and eat. I'm like, yeah, people wake up like, what should we eat? And then they sit around for their hours. What should we eat? What should we eat and sit around? And it's like, that's just one level. It's like, okay, that's one. But if your sleep is horrible, if you're not breathing, if you, your mouth breathes, you have no capacity to understand. Like, I think sleep is how we control our energy. Food is how we control our nutrients. Uh, our breath is how we control our energy, our uh, like psychological state. Our movement is how we control like the hormone. Like there's obviously, there's a lot of things in movement. I think movement is how we think as well. Like you can yeah. make the argument that movement came before, well, I think it's actually not an argument. Movement came before speech in a sense. Like we, oh, yeah. we move because we speak in a sense. Like we speak because we move, I should say it backwards. And then, you know, obviously there's the emotional, like your connection in the tribe and the community. And no one ever talks about that. It's like, mm-hmm. look at the blue zones and all the different things. Like, yeah, but they're all like, they had a purpose. They had a thing to get up and do. And it's like, you know, but there's so much money to be made in telling people they have the wrong thing. Uh, and the water too is another piece too, like, right. you know, getting enough hydration. Um, you know, I'm old enough to uh, remember before the word hydrate was a thing. I mean, it's like we used to just drink water when we were thirsty. Now you've got to be yeah. properly hydrated and you need magic hydration, whatever stuff to be properly hydrated. Well, too, it's funny because it's like, I remember being told, I don't think this has actually gone about it, like the homeostatic cues or tells your body would give you when you're thirsty you can't trust those you got to drink before you're thirsty and you got to drink after you're thirsty and you got to keep drinking and it's like i remember growing in when i was in exercise sports science talking about hydration it's like well your body doesn't know you're thirsty until 15 minutes later right you're telling me that the thing you just told me if i lose one percent of my body weight i'm at risk for death and stroke and all this stuff yet my body has a delayed cue that's like especially in an environment where it's like we pass out i don't need water i'm not thirsty my body would tell me and it's like, wait, I should have like, that's just not, it's so silly. It's so silly that our body's like, we can't listen to our body. And again, there are a lot of people who are very out of tune with their body and some of them can't feel the ground and feel their environment. But like, I think the, the path back towards understanding ourselves starts with the fundamental idea that maybe there is some wisdom that's stored in my intuitive knowing that I might not have the words or science hasn't proven the exact studies, or I don't have the exact, you know, supplement to do that. Like there's something my body isn't just a dumb meat suit like there's a lot of knowledge stored in this thing that like because i think that's the beginning of curiosity and then once you can start to like open up and see like huh it's interesting you should have to trust yourself more and i think fundamentally that's what gives us the ability to move forward in life is the trust it's, in ourselves it's it's an it's anti-capitalist in that um if you were good at um, paying attention to yourself and your own experience and analyzing that correctly you become much less susceptible to marketing yeah absolutely um, 
Uh, and I've, I've often said this, it's like, I say, you know, more people need to know about physics because then you won't be susceptible to certain kinds of marketing uh, in the running shoe world in particular, where they misuse physics on a daily basis to convince you of things that aren't true. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy so stuff. you just started, you started a segue that I want to follow, which is really, um, let's talk about this practically. So when people are introduced to this idea of paying attention to these six things that you mentioned paying attention to, then what can some of people who are listening to this, watching this, or somehow getting it through psychic vibes or smoke signals, um, what's the next step? What can people start to do to start experiencing what you're talking about, to start discovering this for themselves and expand on that? So one of the things I always think is valuable to point out first is that these are ubiquitously available. It's like the most you know, like handicap accessible thing in a certain certain sense. So we all have the capacity to move. Even um, I was doing some research about the spinal engine theory, where he's taught looking at people that had no legs and no arms. Their spine can still move. All movement comes from the spine. So we all have the capacity to move, to use our body, our eyes, our face, our ears, to engage with the world. So movement is free. Right. Whether or not you have to do that in the gym, that's whether or not you want to believe someone else's story. But it's like movement is ubiquitously free. Uh, then sunlight, the sun's still shining, even on a cloudy day. It's like the sun still comes out everywhere in the world, except for, you know, like 30 days of night in Antarctica. But then water, it's like the, what's interesting is you look at things like air, the water and the food. So there's the sleep, there's movement and there's uh the breath. Right. So sleep, movement, you're going to have going out of order. So sleep, movement air so you could do it i believe in you I know. sleep movement water food air uh there's not a lot, but <laughs> you think about the ones that like are a problem so communal so the, the ones that matter right now are they like the water the food and the air right so those are things that we would have depended exogenously like we can breathe we can move we can sleep like we can do that wherever we are our bodies need to have that but we have to depend on a community to take care of the water to care of the food take care of the oxygen around us and so that's where it gets really tough and i think when you look at things people get marginalized in some sense it's like they don't understand they've been told that it's not that important whether or not you drink out of a plastic water bottle they told that it's not that important if you have you know like clean air around you or like what you're what you're wearing on your face the number of things it's like those are the things that really frustrated me because it's like the things that are fundamental are our human body's access to health are being polluted by a communal community that not only is not going to pay the externality for it, but is also gaslighting them along the way of like, oh yeah, your water is dirty, but that's okay. It doesn't really matter that much. Oh wait, we got Florida. It doesn't matter that much. And it's like, then you get it on the, you know, the, um, the health professional where they do studies and stuff like that, where in the like 1950s, when they, you know, they, they paid uh, the sugar uh, industry, paid the uh, the researchers at Harvard, I think, to point that it was fat and cholesterol that was causing problems as opposed to the sugar and the soda, something along those lines. But you see this where you now it's a difficult thing because people don't know what to believe. And that's where you see a fundamental misalignment of values in some capacity. It's like, you know, these things that should be ubiquitously available for people, it's like they can control some of them, but other things it's like, you know, we don't have the intuitive sense to go out and get a well water and test that it's clean. So we have to trust that like our Communities not pouring pollutants in the water, you know. So it, I like the, the the delineation between the things that are intrinsic versus extrinsic. Uh, the extrinsic things are the, I mean, they're they can all be problematic. But so once we have this delineation, again, we can get hyper focused on the water, the food, the air, um, to the point of wanting to shoot ourselves. Frankly, the um, and the intrinsic stuff, the breathing, the sleeping, the moving, that we have more immediate control of. But we're still susceptible to the same kind of 
sales pitches, the same kind of whatever. And, and like some people are going to argue that that's what I do. That's what we do. It's like, we're selling this idea of, you know, grab these shoes. But of course the joke is I just say, we're just getting out of the way as much as possible shoes for since the beginning of human history is like something to protect your foot, something to hold that on your foot, some insulation, if you need it, if you need any of that at all, um, it's really pretty straightforward. But I think you look at the underlying ethos of what you're doing as a company, as an individual is like, I'm taking you from this step. What I like, you can look at that in the argument and say, okay, what direction am I moving people in? Yeah. Right? I may be using the tool and the language. If you speak Spanish and I don't speak Spanish, then I can't communicate with you. But if I can learn to speak some Spanish, even if it's like a broken Spanglish, and I can walk with you in that direction of like, I'm, I'm, you could say, well, you're trying to change everything. It's like, no, no, I'm trying to get on a kind of communal level of understanding. It's like the shoes you sell are getting people in a direction of, I'm getting more stimulus to your body. Right? I'm getting you in this direction of trusting yourself. And I think that's the thing is it doesn't have to be like, oh, you're still on this side of the spectrum, which is selling your product, but it's like that product is moving you away. And there's a whole ethos around how you are orient the business, which is huge. Pues, claro que sí. Pero, um, sorry. <laughs> God, I knew you were saying. <laughs> yeah, I had to do that. Um, so, okay. So obviously, you know, we're part of that equation, but backing up to you, it's all about you. Um, not really, it's a conversation, but it is all about you. So what else, what else do you want to, you know, give people as an, sort of giving them an invitation to start exploring this simpler version of approaching their health, their body, their relationship mm-hmm. to everything else. Uh, you know, we want to give people some things they can experience rather than just go, oh, that makes sense and not have anywhere to go with it. Yeah. So uh, there's, there's a few things. Um, one, it's sleep, breath, light, movement, food, water. I don't know which one I was forgetting, but it's, it, that's, that's a simple idea. But the, the exogenous ones are light. The, the you breath. forgot light. Light. That's it. Yeah. Light's always available. Movement's always available. Sleep is always available. Those things we can easily control. Breath is kind of the next thing in some sense, unless you're in like a polluted environment. But then as like the food and water, those are things that, you know, can get messy quick because we don't have ability to control that. That being said, um, so I've been, I've been dating this girl that I'm quite crazy about, but there's one of the things I've spent time with her realizing she's very good at feeling in a sense. And so there's an intuitive sense. So what I would invite people to start to do is to pay attention to things in a sense that we get very, we get ingrained in our life. Like a, uh, if you think about the analogy of like a, a ski slope where people go down the, the exact, uh, the rivets and they get rode in these ruts and they kind of go through these life and they don't really think about things. They're always reacting. They never responding. They're never really thinking or feeling or paying attention to things. And so some of those pieces are involved in slowing down and just attending to the things in your body. And so this is the idea of like, okay, cause you know, it's, it's nice to talk about these things on a, uh, a theoretical level, but it's like, where does it come in with a tangible, what do I do next? And so that's why I look at this idea of feedback, right? Your body is always giving you feedback. And in many cases, it's the next most obvious answer. Not the one that like, oh, I would love to watch TV. But it's like, if you think a one layer underneath, what is it that you want, right? I'm craving this specific food. It's like, well, what is it that I really want? Do I just want the sugar or am I stressed and the cortisol will be mitigated by the insulin rush? Do I want to watch TV or am I just overwhelmed? I need to turn my brain off. So like, is you can think about there's we've learned quick responses to deal with these specific feedback impulses we have and say, so, okay, well, what's the thing I'm feeling? And sure, I might want to go shoot heroin up, but it's like really what I'm feeling is overwhelmed and stress. And so I just need to like talk to someone, have a good conversation, get outside, take a nap, whatever these things are. And so the point is like to attune to the feedback your body gives you. And it is a very obvious thing. And so most people, you know, they talk about you get involved, like the entrepreneurial circle, people talk about like, what's the dream of your life? What's the passion? What are you going to build? What are you going to do? It's like, 
your body can't even comprehend that until it has the basic necessities taken care of. And so it's screaming at you saying, my knees hurt. And so I look at like, what is, what is joint pain feel like? Okay, well, I'm not getting enough stimulus. I like, let's say hyaluronic acid and hydration to the tissues and the connective tissue around it. Maybe there's something missing in my nutrition. Maybe I'm doing too much of the same thing. Maybe I'm too sedentary. Like you, your body knows this stuff. Well, so I want to I interrupt because the way we, we kind of dove into this, but as we dove into it, it suddenly started getting super complicated. Like, you know, the whole like hyaluronic acid. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like suddenly we're talking fucking supplements. So let's, I want to, I want to back up to the first part you said before we try to figure more crap out was this, um, again, it's kind of the Socratic approach to our body of paying attention to things that we either want or want to get rid of. And if I'm, and pardon me, I'm trying to paraphrase. And um, asking some questions, I mean, listening, you know, paying attention and then asking questions. The biggest one is simply why. So like you said, the one that I love is, you know, I want to watch TV. Why? Because for Lane and I, at the end of a long day, I, I come home, I make dinner, we watch TV, dog on the couch. And it's because we're tired. And on the one hand, we could go take a nap. But we also like being together, being with the dog, getting having some entertainment, which is a shared experience. So the why for watching TV is definitely, um, it's a really interesting question. But if I went underneath, in fact, the why is, you know, shut my brain off, but I already just did it. A secondary why or underneath that is, oh yeah, there's this time together. Um, and there's all those whys can be really interesting because my favorite example you gave is uh, I'm going to go shoot heroin or drink or whatever it is that we use to not feel something or not think something. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting one. I want to go get drunk or I want to go get high. Why? Well, um, I can't handle fill in the blank. And if we ask, you know, why we might find ourselves saying, that's interesting because actually I can handle it. I just don't like it. I'm just trying to avoid this thing. And maybe that'll change the relationship you have when you reach for that bottle, that syringe, that pill, that whatever. And so again, I'm paraphrasing, but it sounds like if we had to put someone on the path, we'd invite them to, and please correct me when I'm finished ranting about this, we'd invite them to pay attention to the things that they want to have different or that are um, causing problems or they're moving towards whether it comes to, has to do with food or stuff. pick one. I'd pick one is what I would do. Like yeah. pick one and listen to, you know, pay attention to what thoughts you have, what feelings you have around that thing and ask that question of like, why, or what's next, or what does that mean? Um, mm-hmm. That's the way I approach investigating. Yeah. No, I love what you said. I think there's a, but there's a bi-directional component to that, which is, okay, you pay attention to what is the thing I'm moving towards and then you ask why. And it's almost always, I'm either moving towards it because of something I'm, there's like a cofactor in a sense, like I'm moving towards watching TV on the couch because it also represents this thing. Like there's a carry on with it or I'm moving away from something else. Yeah. yeah, yeah. As a problem. So like the question is, why do I, whatever this thing I'm attending to that I think is important that I want to do that I am motivated to do. Why, why is that? Is it because of something, you know, what's the real thing that I'm going with it or what's the thing I'm running away from? And in, in many cases, there's, there's two opportunities there. If you pay attention to the thing that's going with it, you can actually then say, well, you know, I do love watching TV and that stuff, but what I really want is the connective time with my wife. So well, I could, there's, you know, my play a board game or do something like that. Like I could maximize the thing I actually want by doing this thing. Or right. I can say, you know, I can turn and have more feedback. I didn't even have to tackle today, but it's like, I'm doing that because it's like, there's actual, you know, we, we don't really want to have a conversation. This is our quality time, but we don't want to have conversations about some difficult fight we had the other day, or I'm running away from the stress of things I have to do. And it's like, well, I need to turn and face that because, you know, it's like, I, there's this great quote I read today, which is 
if you imagine the problems you have in your life right now, but put yourself three, four, five years in the future, and those problems have only gotten worse to the point you have to do with them. It's like, it makes it, if you, we don't, if we don't attend to the problems in our life because we think they'll just go away. But if we were to sit there as a thought experience and say, not only is this not going to go away, it's going to get five to 10 to 15 times worse. It's kind of like the parking ticket. It's 20 bucks. I don't want to deal with it. But if I said, okay, in 10 years, this will be, you know, in two years, this will be $2,000, $200,000, or I can't get a license. Like, all right, that makes that $20 seem very easy. So I think some of those things are like changing perspective, but it only happens when we start to attend and actually notice what's going on and then like say, okay, you know, but you have to have an honest account. You have to see things clearly. So then let's apply this to our six different things as, as simply as we can, this sort of investigative, yeah. informative, moving towards or moving away thing. Um, I'll let you do them in whatever order you like, since I can't remember the order. So I would look and say, what's the, 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 the simple, like, what's the function of this thing? So you look at sleep is the ability. I think if you look at enthusiasm, excitement, joy, like gratitude, that primarily has to do with sleep. And so these are broad categorizations. They do overlap. But you look at like, what do you feel when you feel you're tired, you're grumpy, you're hangry, you're all these things. It's like, okay, so if you're feeling low energy, you're un- unenthused about life, then you probably need more sleep. If you're feeling low energetic, like you mean you don't have the, like your brain isn't functioning well, you don't have the energy to focus, you don't have the, like, it's so a little bit different. I want to pause right there. So let's say we have that, we realize, okay, um, my sleep is not contributing to my happiness and all those other factors. How, do, how does someone then not go down the rabbit hole we described of trying to figure out every supplement you need, the perfect mattress, the perfect pillow, the perfect this, the, you know, um, if you remember from the movie being there when chance got chance, the gardener, Chauncey, the gardener says uh, his bed is in the middle of the room facing some weird way. And someone says, why is your bed like this? He goes, I can only sleep with my head pointing North. And as they start to leave the room, the guy goes, wait, that's West. And chance goes, huh? Well, so so I, I would look and say, go to the fundamental underlying basics of like, what's the simplest, simplest thing? Like, have you given yourself eight hours to be in the bed? Mm. Period. Have you done that? And then you can look at some of the basic things like, okay, which, which makes more sense that your body, do you sleep when it's light outside or when it's dark outside? Okay. I sleep when the sun goes down. So is your room dark? All right. Do you sleep better when it's really hot or when it's really cold or like, okay, are you comfortable? And so some of the basic things before you look at anything exogenous, just look at what's the basic framework within which I would have slept 300 years ago. Awesome. Simple. Okay. So now from there, let's move on to something past sleep. That will go light. So light would be your exposure. Cause there's a few things There's sunlight, which is like your, so you know, do you burn, do you have tan lines? Do you burn when you go out in the sun and do you get enough sun exposure or like light exposure in the morning? So there's a certain level of like, that's such your energetic rhythm. And you don't have to know a bunch of this stuff. But otherwise, it's like, generally, you would wake up when the sun comes up and you go to bed when it goes down, roughly speaking. And you don't have to do that. But you would otherwise know that like, before we had, you know, abundant access to fake light, like that would have been the circle. Okay, so like, the whole point is, I'm not expecting people to go live this perfect ancestral lifestyle. Because like, I don't even think I think there's a fetishizing about that, that we don't even know, we can't prove it to be for sure at all. So, but I think you can take these allegorical examples of like, theoretically, this is how it would work. So a first principles perspective would say, yeah, okay. I can imagine that most people without fire and a lot of fire or like a light bulb would have said, mm, it's getting dark outside, I'm gonna go to bed and it's getting bright outside, I'm gonna wake up. Okay, so good. So we can take cues that like, I generally would have been awake at these times. And so I can say my brain would have associated the cues with that. Then in the middle of the day, it's like being... I think this idea just astounds me. The idea of being inside, like think about that. We're both inside. 
that concept would not have existed for like up until I don't know a few hundred years ago, maybe a few thousand, like two, one, two, three thousand years ago. Inside, like as in like a separate like side, as in to cut away, but like like inside outside. It just it so blows my mind that like people would not. Yeah, do you want to come inside of my house? It's like what do you mean inside? Like what? Like wait, they, they couldn't understand it. So the idea though is we would have been in sun and we'd have exposure, and so. That sets our brain's ability to get light to there's so many different levels but without getting too nerdy about it. The basic idea is like if you're low on energy, like getting the sunlight sets your energetic circadian rhythm and that also functions with your sleep. So that's why they overflow. But that's you can say first principles, what am I missing? And so if I'm low energy, it's like, well, have you been inside all day? Okay, so maybe it's time to go outside and then like start your day, finish your day, and then spend some time in the middle of the day being outside. And that's going to help your energy will perk up. Then you look at food. I look at food, what's the, you think, okay, well, this basic thing that people would have had, and then like, how would you know that it's a problem and say, okay, you either overweight, meaning you have too much fat, you are, or you are nutrient deficient. So in a sense, like food would function as a way to store calories for the future. So store energetic capacity for the future, but get nutrients. So that's where you look at like deficiencies in your skin, your hair, your nails, um, your, your basic, your body ability to recover your hormone production, stuff like that. But basically it's like, do you feel good? Do you look good? And that's where you look at the, the cues of like, are your, is your skin supple? Do you get like flush? Is your circulation good? Is your, are your nails healthy? Is your hair healthy? Do your teeth like, are they, you know, roughly like formed well? Is your jaw formed well? So you can look at like how attractive someone is, is really a good measure of how well they have access to food in some sense, right? So you can look at someone that's, and this is broadly speaking, because obviously yes, we're not going to talk about anorexic models. Um, so I, I so, um, uh, there's a different different levels of attractiveness in this in that frame, but suffice it to say. So, all right. So, the simple. So, anyway, onto our sort of first principles or simple thing of, of approaching food. But and FYI, I do back to something else you said. I do think that we over focus on food, thinking it has more magical powers than it does. Yeah. But um, but be that as it may. So, if someone starts to investigate the food aspect, then what's our simplest way of in, of doing that, of inviting that questioning mentality. Did what you eat exist 200 years ago? Because mm. that, I, I just think that is the simplest thing. And that could, like, honestly, for most of the vegan vegetarians, like, I, it can be totally fine. It can work for you, but it's like, this is a modern day luxury based off refrigeration, the ability to have this access to farming. And you I'm know, not saying that we couldn't do it. You know, in, in 150 years, definitely. Um, you can't ask that question because then not only would you be able to say, well, 200 years ago, we ate Twinkies, but you'd still be able to have one that was still fresh that was made 200 <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Well, that's assuming the people, I think at that point, if we have not managed to have an understanding about nutrition that serves us well, we're going to have a, we will have bankrupted every capacity of a free society because of healthcare. So we're already on that path, but yeah, um, I, I mean, it's, it's certainly a good start. You know, um, was this something my grandparents could have made um, or gotten access? I mean, not even access to, because we do get access to things that they couldn't get. I mean, um, getting grapes in the winter. I mean, that's not going to happen in the Northern hemisphere, but the fact that you can get them, you know, 200 years ago, that wasn't possible. Yeah. And that's why I think you can look and you don't have to be overly reductionist about like, well, this latitude, we wouldn't have had this at the season. Yeah. But you know, we also have iPhones and I'm happy about that too. So like you look and say like, Broadly speaking, I don't need to be overly dogmatic about this because there's a lot of things like, you know, flushing toilets that are great about technology. So I don't have to be overly dogmatic about it. But I think the fundamental thing of saying, was there some place that this thing existed in the form I can right now at any point in the world, at any point? And it's like, if that's a no at ever, never. And you can make the argument things that like the more ubiquitously available, they would have been like fish and meat and um, certain types of like 
some types of fruit, like, okay, then we probably would eat those more frequently. And then things that like, maybe not as always there, like you can say a proportion of that. And, and Never, I, I want to highlight something you just said, which is, you know, don't get two pennies in a wad about it because yeah. the bananas we have now are not the same bananas they had 200 years ago, yeah. all different game apples, same thing. But yeah. in fact, sometimes some we lost, some we gained, but suffice it to say, you know, just don't, don't get too upset about it. So we've done, all right, we've done uh, sleep. We've done food. We've done, we've done light. All right. We got a couple minutes. Let's do the other three. Yeah. So water, for example, water, I think it goes into like, um, like your ability. There's a lot of things to go with water, but basically I think that's your focus in the sense your, your joint, uh, like your hydration, your skin, um, it's like a dehydration, like a dryness. Like if you feel dry, you feel parched, like your body isn't, um, elastic, your skin doesn't pop back. There's certain things you can feel. That's more of an intuitive thing, but like you will feel dry. And that's, that's a cue for a lot of people. It's like, okay, have you drink any water? You know, it's like, or do you owe it? When's the last time you drank something that wasn't flavored? And not to say that that's a problem, but it's like, okay, you know, like some level, like it's okay to have that. So that's a little bit broader because I think that there is some of this is important, but like, when's the last, do you drink when you're thirsty? Have you, you know, drink? And there's basically like an ounce per two pounds body weight or, or an ounce per kilo, like roughly speaking, that's going to be fine. Right. But like, you know, actually, I'm sorry. I lied about all that. <laughs> is your urine dark purple or not dark? Is it dark brown, like dark yellow? Like, what does your pee look like? If your pee is really yellow, you need to drink more water. If it's really clear, you probably drink less water. And if your pee is dark purple, you are on shrooms, dude. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry, not purple. That's what I meant. The first principles of like, yeah, look at your body. And so, like, okay, one of those, you're drinking too much, one and drinking too little. It'll tell you, you use the color. Then the next one, you get um, movement in a sense. I think movement is basically like a level of pain. And it's like your joints in a sense. Do your joints feel good? Do you feel stiff? Do you feel tight? Like, you know, there is something like, do you have pain in your body? And that pain could be a finger. It could be joints. It could be anything going on. Your muscles feel stiff. Like, you'll know. Like, when you get up, it's like, you know, what hurts? And if you don't hurt, that's good. It's okay. Like, it's okay to not hurt. I think there's a level of people want things to be different. They want running. People get really annoyed when I talk about running because they think it's like, well, they're like, well, it's supposed to be hard. And I'm like, no, it's not. Like, it's really, it's a, it's a fundamental we can run and it shouldn't take that much energy. It's like, you want it to be hard to so burn the calories and that stuff. But that's broadly speaking. But if your body hurts, yeah. And so then you say, okay, have I moved everything? Have I gotten out of my chair? Have I sat for more than 30 minutes in one spot? Like, And then the last one, um, breathing. I think breathing is where you look at the, uh, the inner psychological state, basically, are you stressed, are you overwhelmed, are you anxious, are you tense, Do you, are you grinding your teeth, then in which case, most of the time, your mouth breathing, you're in a sympathetic state of like, okay, I'm hyped up. Breathing is how we access that parasympathetic, which is a calm, rest, digest phase. We, the meditation is mindfulness, just calmly taking a second. So, you know, it's one of those, like, how do you feel? Do you feel good? Are you anxious? Are you depressed? Are you overwhelmed? Like, yeah, how's your breathing? And it's like, okay, well, just take a second and catch your breath. You know, it's like, there's a reason for some of these, these, uh, these statements. One of the things that I find interesting is the, the challenge to some of this for some people is that one of the other functions uh, that our brain does for us is habituating. And so we'll have a certain kind of pain, a certain kind of tension, for example. And after a while, the brain just goes, I, I got to stop paying attention to that because it's too distracting. So we just don't notice and it takes someone to point it out. Um, which typically uh, we don't respond well to. So 
uh, someone says, dude, you're a little tight. I'm not tight. It's like, oh, oh relax. <laughs> Um, I'm not right. I'm relaxed. Oh, geez. Uh, take a breath. I'm breathing. Holy crap, man. Um, so, you know, things like that. Um, but uh, that's actually another interesting thing that, that I'm just playing with in my brain right now. It's like, what can I, I don't even know how to ask the question. Cause you know, how do you become aware of something? You that shake you, up the snow um, globe. Say again. How do you shake up the snow globe when you're so used to doing something that you're not even paying attention? How do you shake yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you shake up the snow globe? How do you how do you bring your awareness to something that your awareness has shut your shut you off from? Um, is an interesting question. I don't have an answer for it, but that's a fun one. Well, so I would look at say I think there's um it's not the there's the the people there's a the school of not mm-hmm. the Epicureans um. There's like the ancient, the Greeks that were very Chad, they like were specific about what they, there's Jamie Wheels written some stuff about it. It's not stoic, but there's basically the people that were like very reserved, very specific, very like, you know, did this, but every now and then they would just light things up. And so that's where certain things like hmm. scheduling in things. And so basically I, I would love my first thought would be like, you know, things like psychedelics and uh, like hard workouts and, and challenging things. But that's where there's a whole level of like scheduling in routine things. So it could be a vacation. So you don't know you're stressed at work till you go on a vacation. You have to create whatever the opposite is of your normal thing. You have to get out of that thing. So mm-hmm. you don't know you're hungry. You don't know what hunger is. So you stop eating in a sense, like you, you, or you don't know you're full, like the opposite of that. So if you don't know, I should like schedule in the thing, like have I gotten a vacation? Have I had a mental break? Have I had a movement? Like, you know, try doing those things and movement sessions. So I think that's, I could think of a more formulated way of saying it, but I have, I have a real simple version of that, that, um, that I notice that I do is I pay attention to habitual movements. Like, um, I noticed that I was putting my pants on left leg first. So I spent yeah. the last three months trying to stop myself and always doing right leg first until yeah. About two weeks ago, I realized that I'm now ambilegsterous or whatever that would be. And without thinking, I just switched back and forth from one to the other in a way that I wasn't doing before. So I, yeah. I always look for like, what's that thing that I do? Um, I always sit on my left butt cheek when I'm in the car. What am I doing that for? So, you know, now I'm like focusing on my right butt cheek. I don't know why. And uh, until I find, you know, going back and forth is sort of yeah. effortless. And so maybe that's one way in is just, well, I think the underlying, I agree. I do the same thing, but I think the underlying question is how do you get someone to bring awareness to the fact that they have habitual patterns? That's um, a little harder. Yeah, it's, it's, it is. I, I mean, luckily for things like how you brush your teeth, how you put on your pants, how you put on a shirt. Um, there, there's some things that we do encounter so frequently that I'm hoping that my mentioning one of those might make people go, oh, um, you know, here's a funny one related to, to my business. I never knew there were so many ways to tie your shoes until I started going to trade shows and watching people put on a pair of shoes and seeing how they tied their shoes. I've really? seen a hundred different ways of tying your shoes. Find a new one. You know, like just look, just look for these things that we do on a daily basis and, and see if there's a there there for uh, trying a different one. And um, the shoes is, is hysterical or find the way, you know, you do long division, go get online, find another way to do it. Um, I, I, I have a certain fondness for those. So I like your idea of basically do the opposite, but you have to figure out what the first thing is before you can find its opposite and then give it a whirl. Well, I think that's why movement is so valuable because it's like yeah. movement is the, it's, it's how we form trust with our body. And it's the ubiquitous thing that's available to us. So like yeah. starting your curious adventure, like think of, gymnastics it's like naked nude it's like i think it stands for a new naked movement or something like that uh, like literally it's just like kids would have gone to school movement and learning weren't uh, bifurcated yeah. it was like yeah. you just go to school and you move and you learn how to be curious about things as evidenced by your body and then from there you can start to ask bigger questions about like 
purpose and meaning. And so that's my point is like, you can't fundamentally think bigger until you've taken care of the th- basic feedback your body's given you. I can see that. Um, I hate to do this because we could do this all day and go in many different directions, but uh, I, I got to pee. So, um, <laughs> so actually, is it going to be purple? <laughs> actually, I got a meeting in two minutes, but uh, it was fun to say I got to pee, which I do, but uh, uh, you know, I'll, I'll wait. So uh, to wrap things up, if people want to find out more uh, about this, to dive into this with you a bit more and experience what it could be like to not have to go down this path of always looking outside for some magic solution for our special little snowflake self, but make this whole health and wellness thing simpler and more enjoyable. How can they find you? So uh, social media is going to be the best TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, it's the barefoot sprinter. Uh, but basically I've got three one month long courses that teach people about their body and get them get inspired to move again, to solve pain points in their entire system and like themselves again, like really be a, a, be awed by the beauty that is your body. That sounds delightful. Well, um, Graham, this has been, again, a total pleasure every time we chat. Um, so go check out what he's up to. Let us know what you experience when you do. And then just a plug for us. Once again, a reminder, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com to find previous episodes, all the places you can find the podcast, ways you can interact with us on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, share it, spread the word. That's the movement, the first movement of the movement movement. And if you have any questions or recommendations, people that you want to be on the show, uh, people you don't want on the show, I don't know, whatever you can think of, drop me an email, move, M-O-V-E at jointhemovementmovement.com. But most importantly, until the next time or whatever that happens to be, go out, have fun and live life feet first.